Welcome to the Neutral Ground Podcast. This is a special episode that is dedicated to a very important issue that we are currently facing. Veterans who served in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and they're coming to terms with the outcome and with their place in society. This is not an easy topic to discuss. However, it's one that we have to because we've been here before. We've got thousands of years of recorded thoughts about the end of major conflicts and the transitional period after the proverbial dust has started to settle. Now, I'm going to look at this from a neutral ground perspective. So first, I should probably explain what that means. I'm not going to discuss why we were there, or why we removed our presence. I'm not going to get into the politics of the situation. Remember, this podcast is all about not giving in to just one-sided extreme views. And this is one of those topics that can easily become lost and ignored if we try and look at it from just one side of any political spectrum. In fact, if it were possible, I would say get the politics out of it completely. But I suspect that this would be a fairly impossible task. Truth be told, I have too much respect for the people involved, both those who served under the United States military and those Afghani citizens who served to aid the United States to try and pretend like I have some insight into what they should have done. In truth, I don't know what should or even could have been done, so I'm not going to pretend to try to know. However, there is one aspect of this discussion that I feel already might be getting swept under the rug, one that I do feel qualified to talk about because it connects with my past research on heroism and my current research on historical movements and how they shape our culture. By the end of this episode, I hope you understand why we're in a crucial period right now for those who have served in all capacities of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The main question or concern for me is how do we prevent the individuals who served and even the families of those who served from falling into complete and utter despair over the ways in which the wars have ended and how they're being discussed in various media outlets? Whether you were for the war, against it, or feel betrayed by those who got us in the war, or betrayed by those who got us out, it is incumbent upon us as thoughtful and caring citizens to do what we can to prevent that despair that they might be currently feeling from spiraling into a prolonged state of deep depression and cynicism. Because depression and cynicism can easily become anger and chaos. And when anger and chaos become coordinated, you end up with violence. But what can we do? First, we have to recognize that we've faced this before. We have mechanisms that we can use to help us achieve a better understanding of what can potentially happen if we do nothing. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I talk a lot about current historical movements, particularly the one we're in now, neo-modernism. Now, one of the interesting aspects of neo-modernism is that it shares traits that are similar to modernism, the age roughly between World War I and World War II. Therefore, we can utilize what we know about how modernism treated war in order to help us clarify potential approaches for helping veterans and citizens who were directly involved in our more current wars to make sure that they understand their value to society, how much they're needed here with us, and why it's crucial 
that they relocate the site of heroism and purpose from the field of battle to the home. So what does history and literature tell us about this? Well, let's dive into this important topic and start making our way toward a better understanding of what we can do. Before we dive into modernism, I want to show just how far back this notion of transitioning value from the battlefield to the home actually goes. We're going to begin with one of our earliest texts of war in Western literature, the Iliad by Homer. The larger narrative of the story is that it's about the Greek Achaeans waging war against the Trojans, two major empires clashing for dominance, and the text tells us that it's Helen, you know, Helen of Troy, who is at the heart of the conflict. But there are other considerations involved as well, namely politics and glory. Although the larger narrative is about the Trojan War, at the heart of the story is actually the decisions of one man. Well, I mean, demigod. Achilles. The text opens with the following lines. Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son, Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses. We're told what this story is actually about right from the beginning. It's about rage. It's about what unbridled anger can do to the individual, how it can manipulate us into becoming something that we never wanted to be. It's also giving us insight into something that I think we might know intuitively, but that we often forget. Although some battles in history can take on a life of their own and develop their own narratives, Gettysburg, for example, or Normandy, the stories of war are still mostly told from the perspective of collective individual stories. Now that might sound like a bit of a flunkyism, but let me explain what I mean. We tend to view wars in the past through collectively gathered individual stories. The reason why this is an important concept for us is, well, kind of twofold actually. First, history is important, and the more stories that we can gather, the better we can understand the historical event. Secondly, one of the best methods that we currently have for helping veterans with PTSD is to allow them to tell their stories. We'll talk more about that later on in the episode. Now, I'm going to give a little context here to Achilles' part in the Trojan War because it will set us up for our overall conversation of transitioning from war to the home, so bear with me. I am most definitely sensitive to the fact that it might seem like I'm meandering. But I promise you I'm not. We're told in the first verse of the Iliad that Achilles is responsible for the deaths of his own men because of his choice to not fight in the war. In doing so, he loses one of his most beloved friends, Patroclus, whom he loves dearly. Achilles is a one-man army, and when he does choose to fight in the war, he immediately turns the conflict in favor of the Greeks. He defeats the greatest hero that Troy has to offer, Prince Hector. And then he proceeds to defile the prince's body, refusing to allow Hector a proper burial, an act that has dire repercussions in the Greek understanding of the afterlife. Nonetheless, Achilles, in the 24 books of Homer's Iliad, cements himself as the most feared warrior by far in the conflict, and he wins his glory by the end, his glory being a sustainable narrative of his feats. 
We read about Achilles' prowess thousands of years later to this day, a testament to his attainment of immortality through narrative. By the end of one's reading of the Iliad, one cannot help but be somewhat enthralled by Achilles' story, his epic status. However, when Homer writes his next epic poem, The Odyssey, the story of the Greek hero Odysseus's journey home from the Trojan War, we get a very different understanding of war, and we bear witness to Homer's thoughts about post-war culture and the heroic narrative. At one point in the Odyssey, Odysseus has to travel into the underworld, a realm of shadows, where he meets people who have passed away, well-known figures from the Trojan War, and even people he did not know had passed, like his own mother. One important figure that he crosses paths with is none other than the epic hero Achilles himself. Odysseus says to the great Greek warrior, Was there ever a man more blessed by fortune than you, Achilles? Can there ever be? We ranked you with immortals in your lifetime, we Argives did, and here your power is royal among the dead men's shades. Think then, Achilles, you need not be so pained by death. You can hear in Odysseus's voice the tremendous amount of respect that he still has for Achilles as the great warrior. What Odysseus sees before him is still the same man that he fought with in Troy, the man who brought the entire Trojan army to its knees at one point. To these kind words, Achilles replies, Let me hear no smooth talk of death from you, Odysseus, light of counsels. Better, I say, to break sod as a farmhand for some poor countryman, on iron rations than lord it over all, the exhausted dead. These words are somewhat shocking to us. It's a bit of an understatement to say that Achilles is not interested in hearing about how glorious he was in battle. In the back of our minds are the words that the poet John Milton will eventually put into the mouth of his Satan character in Paradise Lost, when the devil says, Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Here, Achilles is saying somewhat the opposite, that it's better to be a farmer, tending to his crops, than to reign over the shades in the underworld. It's what happens in the very next line that is of most interest to us even more so than learning more about why Achilles suffers so. Achilles asks, Tell me, what news of the prince, my son? Did he come after me to make a name in battle? Or could it be he did not? Achilles isn't interested in reminiscing over his own accomplishments. He wants to learn about his son. His thoughts turn to the domestic, toward a pride in home. In one of the most beautiful moments in the story, Odysseus tells Achilles of how courageous his son was in battle, how he never hung back in the mess, but ranged far forward of his troops. No man could touch him for gallantry. At the end of Odysseus's words, we read the following. But I said no more, for Achilles had gone off striding the field of Asphodel, the ghost of our great runner, Achilles glorying in what I told him of his son. The language here is important. Achilles is glorying in what he hears of his son. He is no longer seeking glory for himself. He is seeking glory in something else. The locus of glory has shifted here from the self to a domestic realm. What we learn from these two tales, when read next to each other or back to back, 
and I of course encourage all to read them at least once. And just as a quick aside, should you decide to read them, I personally enjoy the Robert Fagel's Iliad translation and the Robert Fitzgerald Odysseus translations. I find them both to be beautifully arranged by their translators. But what we learn from these two tales is that there seems to be a kind of natural transition that occurs in the hero, from warrior in the field to warrior at home. But the tales also highlight that this can be somewhat of a difficult journey to take. It's fraught with obstacles and potentially dangerous tangential side stories that can keep us from getting back home, back to the family, back to our communities. Now you might be thinking, well, these stories are thousands of years old. What about something a little more present? Okay, let's take a look at what modern stories have to say about this transition. In fact, let's move right into modernism proper after World War I. Of course, it's my argument that this move will help us better understand our neo-modern condition today. Our first stop on the modernist storyline is with an author who sometimes blurs the lines of modernism and postmodernism, James Joyce. Joyce's novel, Ulysses, can be quite a difficult story to get through, mostly because the author plays a lot with genre and kind of switches at times from straightforward romantic novel to postmodern, almost theater-of-the-absurd-like discussions. Nonetheless, it is a great work, and worth a read if you really want a challenge. Ulysses is based on the epic poem we just looked at, The Odyssey. However, Joyce gives it a more modern touch, but with similar results in some ways. At the heart of the story is our epic hero, Leopold Bloom, and he is anything but epic. In fact, he's quite boring and even mousy at times. But one thing that makes Bloom epic in the modern sense is that he loves his wife, a woman who is not even faithful to him, and he is a good father figure to the young man Stephen Dedalus. In Joyce's story, it isn't the braggadocious man who is hero, it's the man who listens the man who occupies a domestic space and reconfigures that space as the new site for battle, a battle against despair. We know that this is, at least in the back of Joyce's mind, from the Eumaeus chapter of the novel, when both Bloom and Stephen meet the classical epic figure in D.B. Murphy. Murphy has seen it all on the seas, and he is more than willing to tell us his tales of adventure. He's been out at sea for a long time, like Odysseus from Homer's poem. And like Homer's epic hero, Murphy has a wife and a child. He says, My little woman's waiting for me, I know. For England, home and beauty. She's my own true wife. I haven't seen her for seven years now, sailing about. Murphy draws strength from the idea of his wife waiting for him. But when we think of Homer's story, we know that All the while that Odysseus is out at sea trying to get home to his wife, the faithful Penelope is being assaulted by suitors who want to marry her and take over their kingdom. She's in her own kind of private little hell, waiting for Odysseus to come home and clear out the suitors. Additionally, both Murphy and Odysseus have young boys. In the case of the Odyssey, the suitors are trying to kill Telemachus, Odysseus' son. 
and by the end of the epic poem we feel the weight that has been on both father and son, an estrangement. They are able to come together in the end. However, Homer lets us feel the burden of space and time that has passed between them. In the case of D.B. Murphy in Joyce's story, we also get a sense of estrangement. At one point when Murphy is telling his audience another great tale, he says, There's my son now, Danny, run off to sea, and his mother got him took in a draper's in a cork where he could be drawing easy money. Murphy's audience, still listening intently, asks for the boy's age. His response is, Why? The sailor answered with a slow, puzzled utterance. My son, Danny? He'd be about eighteen now, way I figure it. His slow, puzzled response indicates an inability to draw from his memory an accurate depiction of his son. Murphy can't struggle with this for long, however. It would become too painful to come to the realization that he doesn't really know his son at all and that there are few opportunities left to do so. Therefore, he quickly changes the subject to himself again. The narrator tells us, The skibbering father hereupon tore open his gray or unclean anyhow shirt with his two hands and scratched away at his chest, on which was to be seen an image tattooed in blue Chinese ink intended to represent an anchor. Words such as tore and scratch represent how his internal struggle with his detachment from his son, must come out physically. It must burst out of him or risk becoming an all-subsuming feeling within him. Joyce understood that stories like the Odyssey give us an important note about returning from war and the importance of reconnecting with family, bridging any gaps of estrangement or detachment that might have been there. The alternative is that one can remain detached and become a kind of D.B. Murphy, someone who needs to continually tell stories of his exploits, not as a means of connecting with others and building order, but so that they can engage in a kind of filibuster, an emotional filibustering, if you will. Let's take a look at another modern author. Perhaps there is no modern war veteran turned author that is more well known than Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway served as an ambulance driver in Italy for the American Red Cross. In June 1918, he was wounded by mortar fire and received a silver medal of valor from the Italian government. Later, as he reflected on his service in the war as a young man, Hemingway wrote, When you go to war as a boy, you have a great illusion of immortality. Other people get killed, not you. Then when you are badly wounded the first time, you lose that illusion, and you know it can happen to you. After being severely wounded two weeks before my 19th birthday, I had a bad time until I figured out that nothing could happen to me that had not happened to all men before me. Whatever I had to do, men had always done. If they had done it, then I could do it too and the best thing was not to worry about it. What Hemingway is able to discover here is the power of understanding that individual perspectives can be located within a larger scheme of collective experience. He knows that he could survive because others have survived. It doesn't mean that he knew he would survive. 
It just simply means that he understood that it was possible based upon past experiences that have been shared by other humans. There's a beautiful optimism in Hemingway's words here. However, he does offer us a potentially darker reading through one of his short stories, a perspective that we must help soldiers who are home now avoid. In Hemingway's short story, Soldier's Home, published in 1925, he writes about a young man named Harold Krebs, who has returned home from World War I in the summer of 1919, about a year after the war had already ended. Krebs is struggling to find meaning in his life. And when I say find meaning, I'm talking about the idea that the soldier is struggling to locate really any reference points of meaning in the reality around him. Picture it almost like those movies that take place in outer space when one of the astronauts suddenly becomes untethered to the ship by accident, and they're just kind of slowly moving further and further away from the ship. And with each passing foot, losing a little bit more hope that you'll ever find your way back again. That's a truly frightening place to be. Toward the beginning of the story, we're told that At first, Krebs did not want to talk about the war at all. Later, he felt the need to talk, but no one wanted to hear about it. This is an important place for us to stop for a moment. I'm not sure there is a more helpful thing that you can do for returning vets and their families than just listen to them. Listen to their narratives. However, you have to be willing to accept the fact that these stories will come when they're ready not when we are ready. One needs time to reflect on events like these, to attempt to make sense of what happened and what is happening. Thoughts, memories, and feelings need to be translated into language and then edited in order to make sense. The more the individual is allowed to think, speak, edit, and then re-speak, the more likely it is that this person will be able to come out the other side with some sense of narrative reassurance, and that can be incredibly helpful for them. You want to be open to that moment of expression when it arises, because it can be a defining moment in their healing and reconceptualization of self and home. Now, toward the end of Hemingway's story, Krebs's mother attempts to push her son toward reconnecting with meaningful emotions like love. She asks him, Don't you love your mother, dear boy? Krebs responds, No. As his mother begins to cry, he says, I don't love anybody. His mother begins to break down even more. In that moment, Krebs is caught in a difficult position because, in a lot of ways, he does mean what he just said. And yet, there's a part of him that is still there that knows that he loves his mother, or at least that he should. However, the concept of love has somehow moved from him. It doesn't seem real. There's a problem of communication here. Krebs's mother desperately wants her son to simply move on and continue with life as if he had never left, to be where she believes he might have been in life if he hadn't gone off to war, married, children, career, etc. But he did go. Krebs says, It wasn't any good. 
He couldn't tell her. He couldn't make her see it. There are times when language fails us, fails to capture the fullness of what we are feeling. In these situations, we as humans turn to symbols and symbolism. I believe it was Carl Jung who gave this kind of definition to symbols as a means of expressing the inexpressible. Krebs tells us that he is consciously aware of the hurt that he caused his mother when he said that he didn't love her. He says, I didn't mean it. When his mother's disposition doesn't improve, he implores her to believe him. He says, Can't you believe me, mother? His mother shakes her head, No. Then we get this important line. Krebs responds, Please, please, mother, please believe me. She says, All right. I believe you, Harold. That last exchange between the two is so powerful for us because it demonstrates something that we struggle with as a people. Is it likely that Harold is lying in that moment about not meaning what he said? Yes. And is it likely that his mother is lying about believing that he didn't mean it? Yes. So why would these two people create this social contract moment of accepting the lies of each other? Well, I would argue that these two are using the lies as conduits to what they believe and want to be the truth, to a truth that they both have to believe in, that they can return to that space of loving and the belief in being loved. If we think about it this way, the two statements transcend the surface-level rhetoric of being labeled lies. That's too easy of a reading, and this is too complex of a situation for such simplicity. They have to set where they want to be in the end, and they will need to build the pathway there together with patience, resilience, and trust. This is not a happy story. Harold is not fully better by the end. Although, I think you can make an argument that he has been given some clarity, and that is not a small victory. He is going to need time to put all of his thoughts together and to develop some semblance of narrative from which he can begin to put back together his place in the world. This idea of building a narrative out of memories is fraught with difficulties, however. Our memories are quite unreliable. But it's not necessarily the accuracy of our memories that are the most important aspect of building a narrative that feels true to us. It's our need to connect with structure, to impose order on the chaos of our minds. This ordering of the mind appears to work best when it can be expressed creatively. In fact, according to a peer-reviewed study in the Journal of Military, Veteran, and Family Health entitled Veterans, Self-Expression in Poetry. It says, quote, Research shows the positive effects of creative self-expression, and specifically poetry therapy, for veterans, including veterans experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the reasons this might be the case is because when you write the event down and give it order, you also give that event a tangible place to be, to exist outside of the self. Now, that might seem like a weird or odd thing to say. However, 
In the same article mentioned previously, it talks about a poem written by War in Iraq veteran Brian Turner, titled, Here, Bullet. The author of the essay notes in Turner's work that, quote, the poem becomes an alternative space to his body, a space in which he can work with his experiences. There is a reason why we as a species have been writing in journals and diaries for a very long time. If you know someone who is struggling with their experiences in war, or any trauma for that matter, try encouraging them to write about it and encourage them to be creative, to use metaphors and similes where straightforward language fails, and to give those traumatic experiences another body to inhabit. Now, I want to take a moment here and think a little bit about those who stay behind and support loved ones who have gone to war. In a letter to her husband, Frederick, dated November 11, 1918, Evelyn Albright writes, I was reading the last letter I wrote to you, a year ago tonight. In the morning I knew there was no use of writing. It was hard, but not so hard to wait till the war was over. But now it's over, and you'll never come again. Oh, Ferd, I try to be glad with the others, but the future is so empty. The only thing to do is to keep busy trying to be helpful to others. But oh, my husband, I miss your understanding and your love. Nobody else ever understood the way you did. Oh, Ferd, why can't you come home with the rest? They had a noisy demonstration of peace this afternoon. It seemed cheap and tawdry to me. I idly wondered how many who tooted horns and rode around in cars and made a noise knew what either peace or war meant. Yet one I saw, Jack Eaton's mother. Ferd, you were so much to me that my heart is empty. If I could only be big enough to take the world in. But you know, one needs someone to believe in one. Do you remember the night war was declared? I always think of the two women we saw weeping in a dark corner when I think of that night. I think of what it means to, to the men in the trenches when they get the news that they can sleep peacefully at last. This is what it says to me. Tonight I shall not dream of things far worse than hell. Tomorrow I shall not wake to the sound of the bursting shell. But tonight I'll sleep and dream of home and life and love. And tomorrow I shall wake and love God's blue above. And I think of the people who will be going home. That letter was written on November 11th, 1918. If you missed it, this is a letter to her posthumous husband. Frederick had passed away in 1917. There's nothing odd about writing a letter to someone who has deceased. In fact, it can help provide some semblance of order on the chaos of mourning and the loss of meaning. How beautiful is her poem, by the way? And there is hope in it. She envisions soldiers being able to transition from the trenches to the home, that they will love God's blue above. We should all be so hopeful. But she does not provide so much hope for herself in this moment. 
We can hear in Evelyn's words the pain of the thought of her future, a future without her loved one. There are plenty of spouses, partners, loved ones who are alone now due to the war, with nothing but their loss, holding on to that feeling as both a blanket and an anchor, comforting in its solitude and yet dragging them down further into the depths of despair. They need encouragement. They need involvement in humanity. Evelyn talks about doing good for others as a means of taking up time, but that will only last for so long. There needs to be an attachment of meaning to her works. We need to show those who have lost loved ones that the world needs them. We need them. As long as they are alive, there is a future that needs them. Purpose and hope are our greatest allies. Despair and cynicism are devils. We must push back against despair until all that can be seen is a future of meaning, of values, of belief that there is good to do in the world and that they play a necessary role in that future. I'm going to end this episode now as best as I can, but I can't help but feel a bit like a failure here. The thoughts of people suffering over what to make of the ending of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are overwhelming, and I genuinely wish that I were a better linguist to provide as much hope as my heart wishes it could. This much, however, I believe to be true. There will be time to discuss what should have happened, time to discuss what could have happened, time for, as the modern author T.S. Eliot writes in The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. That time, however, is not now. What we need are ears to hear, hands for shoulders, arms to embrace, and legs for support. Our soldiers, as they attempt to make sense of what has happened, will need to be supported in their reconstruction of themselves. They aren't outside the purview of neo-modernism. They will need narrative reassurance, transcendence of the body, and to create their sacred space. And they will likely need some help and a lot of willing listeners in order for them to construct their new narratives of heroism in the home. No plug for the website or the podcast today, just some gentle encouragement. If you or someone you love is struggling, please take a moment and use the links in the show notes to get the help you deserve because you deserve to be happy and you deserve to have a good, fulfilled life. Make that choice to do so now, with the click of a button or with a phone call. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on the neutral ground and have a great day, 